This is Play-By-Play Cast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play-by-play guys. For play-by-play guys, by I'm told, a play-by-play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now here's the host of Play-by-Play Cast, Todd Bodet. <laughs> Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay, here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. Hey, it's another episode of Play by Playcast. Thanks, as always, for the subscribe, stream, download, however you're listening to us here on a Friday morning. My name is Joel Godet. This is the podcast about play by play broadcasters for play by play broadcasters. Hosted by a play-by-play broadcaster. It's a professional development podcast. We dive into the tips, tricks, experience, stories, process, preparations of some of the biggest and best play-by-play announcers in the business. You can, as always, find the podcast on social media at PXPCast. I am at Joel Godet, J-O-E-L-G-O-D-E-T-T. Or you can shoot me an email, J-G-O-D-E-T-T at B-S-U dot E-D-U. So that's J Godet at B-S-U for Ball State University. E-D-U. Our guest today is one of the true titans and giants of the play-by-play broadcasting industry. And we'll get into uh, his backstory and the introduction into um, his appearance in, in this episode here in just a little bit. Uh, but his name is Bill Mercer, and he was uh, the very first voice of the Texas Rangers and the voice of the Dallas Cowboys and uh, spent some time in the booth with Harry Carey with the Chicago White Sox and much more. Uh, But we'll get into Bill Mercer here in just a second. Uh, Quick aside, if you're a fan of the podcast, uh, which obviously you hit play, so we're halfway there, um, we're actually going to be, we're taking the pod on the road. Can we say that? Like, is that a thing? Um, We're not doing like a live podcast taping, but uh, I will be at the National Sports Media Association uh, convention weekend awards weekend uh, down in Winston-Salem North Carolina at the end of the month it comes up uh, the the awards dinner is Monday the 25th and then there's a seminar uh, that day as well and as part of that seminar many esteemed broadcasters uh, are speaking uh, Kevin Harlan will be there uh, Wes Durham last week's guest on the podcast uh, which is available in the archives if you'd like to go listen um, Wes Durham will be there uh, Howie Denneroff from Westwood One will be there. Uh, Tom Bowman from Learfield will be there. Like a whole bunch of people that are very important. Uh, I will also be there speaking about podcasting um, because I have this one, which is kind of like having a toddler speak about the toy industry because he has a Power Rangers figure. Um, but at the same time, uh, I'm kind of looking forward to the opportunity. Uh, I've been doing a, a lot of uh, legwork and kind of diving into the podcasting world so I can... Uh, give kind of the most well-rounded picture possible. Uh, but looking forward to seeing uh, any of you out there listening, if you are going to that uh, National Sports Media Association uh, convention, convention uh, weekend, awards weekend is what it is. Uh, convention just sounds very official. Um, but looking forward to seeing you guys there. If uh, you are at the seminar, uh, come on by and uh, see us for our podcast chat on that Monday afternoon. Anyway, uh, now into the summertime. Which for me as a broadcaster, kind of a downtime. Like this is I like I come home from work now and I just have I have time. Like I make dinner and I can go to bed at a reasonable hour. 
and and like if people ask me to do things socially, I, I can go. I went to Top Golf yesterday for the first time, which is like bowling but golf. Um, but it's also a great opportunity for me over the summer. I look at it kind of as like my professional development time. Um, it's just a time to do different things, explore different things, you know, try different things. Uh, I, I, in the past, I've made tapes. I, I've gone to Indiana Fever games just to work on some things I wanted to work on. Uh, I decided that here in 2018, and a lot of it comes from just doing this podcast and just hearing how people have dedicated themselves to the craft in their own careers. Uh, one of the things I decided in 2018 was that I was going to become a better master of the English language. I think I'm decent at it right now. I was always like an English and history guy. Math and science were not my thing. And I fancied myself a decent writer. Uh, but I wanted to be able to just have a, a more command of uh, language, more command of idioms, more command of sayings, more command of slang. Uh, just be able to really play with language a little bit more in kind of a Doc Emmerich fashion. I feel like when it, you get to Stanley Cup time, that comes out in broadcasters because everybody starts like charting how many things Doc Emmerich says that are just amazing and they tweet them. And then you're like, wow, I am so far behind. Uh, so I've actually decided this summer I'm going to, I'm going to master English a little bit better than, than I have it now. And I actually went to Barnes and Noble. I went to a bookstore. They still exist. Uh, I bought a, a combo dictionary and thesaurus. And yes, for pleasure, I'm going to read the dictionary this summer. How closely? We'll find out. But I just kind of wanted to have... I, I, I didn't own a dictionary. Um, I just kind of wanted to be able to flip through it and just see what kind of words struck me and how I could use them differently. And, you know, it's one thing to do it on the internet, but just to have a physical copy and just be able to flip through and see what popped into my head. Uh, I haven't gotten to that part of it yet, but I also did go to the public library here in Noblesville, Indiana, uh, I also still go to the, those quite frequently. I keep the library in business. Has to be. Like, I never return a book on time. Ever. I think since I've lived in Indiana, I've probably paid the library like $50 in overdue fees. And it's like 25 cents a day, people. So um, just keep that in the back of your mind. Uh, anytime I owe you something, uh, you're probably not getting it on time. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I checked out some books. Uh that I thought would help. And the one I'm working through right now is 1,100 words you need to know. And I'm just kind of flipping through it and seeing what piques my interest and what different words that, I'll be honest, I don't know and, and which ones I can apply into a broadcast setting that don't get too over people's heads um, because that's obviously not what we want to do, but just different ways to be more creatively descriptive. Uh, I also got a book called Word Workout, Building a Muscular Vocabulary in 10 Easy Steps. Uh, this thing's like a thousand pages, so I don't know how we're going to get through this. Um, but it just kind of gives you a whole bunch of different words and backstories on them and, and kind of how they're used, which I thought was cool. And then I got the, uh, Amer uh, the American uh, Dictionary of Slang, uh, the Topical Dictionary of Americanisms, uh, just to see if I can talk the way the kids are talking in some respects. Although I don't know what year this was published. So it might have been like the way the kids are talking, a la New Kids on the Block. Um, so that's my personal growth project uh, here this summer. We'll see how that goes. 
I guess I will keep you posted on it as we go through uh, the summer months here on the podcast, and then we'll see what kind of results it lends once we get to uh, football season. You know, what really got me thinking about it, it's been on my mind for a while, uh, but the Jesse Goldberg Strassler episode, uh, and I, I, I have to purchase the football thesaurus, when we were talking about language with Jesse and his writing of the baseball thesaurus and the football thesaurus, uh, that's one of the things that really got my mind churning a little bit, is not just understanding the sports that we broadcast, but the, the, the languages that are inherent to those games. Um, so that's my project for the summer. Quick aside, uh, to start things off. If you want to get involved on social media, hit us up at PXPCast. Uh, be curious to know if you're in an off-season right now, or even if you're in season, uh, types of things you're doing or the types of things you do to uh, keep yourself moving forward as a broadcaster each and every day. Hit us up, let us know, at PXPCast uh, or myself, at Joel Godet. All right, enough of the uh, pleasantries. On to today's guest, uh, who is Bill Mercer. And as I said off the top, a titan, a legend in this business, in a lot of different ways, and, you know, it's funny. The, the first question I asked Bill was how he would characterize his career to someone who did not know him. Because it's really hard to do succinctly. Like, you can, you can attack Bill Mercer's career from so many different angles. Like, he did so many different things well uh, over a really long period of time, and... I mean, this goes back to, he was on television reporting on the Kennedy assassination. KRLD, 1963, wrote a book about it, he and and, uh, some of his colleagues, when the news went live. Check it out at the public library, just make sure you return it on time. Um, But here's a guy who was the inaugural voice of the Texas Rangers, who also was on television talking about the Kennedy assassination. Think about the versatility. In those two things alone, uh, but also spent a a long time in his career in minor league baseball. Uh, He also, as I mentioned, worked with Harry Carey with the Chicago White Sox. He was the voice of the Dallas Cowboys, uh, where he interacted. We will talk about this with a very young Vern Lundquist. Uh, He was the voice of North Texas for a long time, the Mean Green, where he would later go on Uh, to teach, and we'll touch on this, one of his kind of greatest accomplishments in broadcasting is not so much what he did, but the legacy he left with those he taught. And they have a name that is quite particular. We will get to that in the podcast as well. And uh, a lot of the members of that group are people that uh, you will know and people that have been on this podcast uh, as well. So uh, his legacy, as great as he is as a broadcaster, might even be those people that he has helped churn out and that will carry his name on um, tacitly or overtly, um, big words there, <laughs> tacitly or overtly uh, over the course of their careers. One other thing that Bill Mercer did that is of interest to me and probably some of you out there, we had Rich Bikini on the podcast a couple weeks ago uh, from Major League Wrestling and formerly WWE, but uh, Bill Mercer was the voice of world-class championship wrestling on television. I mean, that's going way back. This is like pre-pre-pre-pre-pre-WWE when wrestling was much different. Like, it was was treated by fans and those in the industry as as real. You know, now there's the acknowledgement of the fact that what we're watching is predetermined and nobody's taking a chair shot to the head. Uh, That was not the case when Bill Mercer was the voice of world-class championship wrestling. 
back in the 1980s uh, when he was the broadcaster for the Von Erichs and the fabulous Freebirds and uh, Bruiser Brody and Ric Flair, some of the, the, the giants of professional wrestling back in those early days of, uh, you know, what has developed into what we know today. Uh, so here's a guy who has covered major league sports at the highest level, professional wrestling at the highest level, news at the highest level. Uh, he's done it all. Uh, has taught and churned out uh, his successors at the highest level um, and is a guy that I was excited and honored uh, to have on the podcast. So as I said, where do we start? Uh, how does he explain his career that covered so much ground uh, to people that uh, don't know who he would be? Uh, Bill Mercer is our guest here on Play by Playcast this week. None of these things I really started out to do, except hopefully be a play-by-play announcer for football. Uh, that was what uh, I was thinking about uh, when I got back from the war and went to college. I thought, well, I'll just do football someplace. I wasn't very uh, up on that you do football, but you have to have another job or you have to work for the radio station. No, I, I didn't uh, expect a lot of this because uh, I was never thinking of it. Uh, let me give you the background of how this all started. Uh, as I may have told you, when I was a kid, uh, I had a listen to the radio with my dad and uh, listening to play-by-play because we listened to sports most of the time, he and I. And I told him one time when I was, I don't know, 10 that I thought I could do that. And he laughed and said, well, maybe you could, you know, but uh, it was just something that was in, it's, it's kind of, I guess you want to be a doctor. You, you feel that all the time or something. <laughs> then I got a game, a little spinner game, uh, baseball game. I was living on a small farm in the summer, so I didn't have much uh, social life. And I, I just did play by play of these games of my local, uh, Class C Western Association baseball team, Muskogee Giants. And I, 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 you know, it was my interpretation of play-by-play, so you no know, telling how it sounded. <laughs> but that was the early induction into this. And then uh, went through high school and kind of let it pass and went in the Navy and uh, in World War II and came back home and, uh, you know, I was going to college and I thought, well, I've what am I going to do? Well, I don't, I'd like to do play-by-play, but I also uh, suddenly, for the first time, after I guess I matured somewhat, uh, was in a, my first play in, in college and was fairly successful. And then I wrote for the stu- school newspaper, which I'd really never done before. And all of a sudden, I'm doing these things like uh, somebody pushed a buzzer and said, this is what you're doing, this is what you're doing. And the guy that really pushed the buzzer was my first great professor, Prof. Robinson, James Robinson at Northeastern State College in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. The man was uh, unbelievable on helping and seeing and preparing you for things. I even I got into debate, and I had never thought about debate in high school because I started being a debater. Uh, this one man uh, opened the door to a lot of things for me, and not the acting. The acting came because I just 
suddenly thought it'd be fun. <laughs> so that, that was a background of stuff that I learned in this little college. And then I went to Denver University and they had a, a so-called radio station on those wired wireless things into the dormitories. And I, I decided, okay, I'm going to do, they weren't doing any sports. So I said, let's do football. And I did football and then I did basketball. Uh, this takes a little while to explain, but then I graduated and had a job as a news director at a station uh, north of Denver. That didn't last particularly long, and I don't know why. Maybe I wasn't good enough or whatever, but that year was rather lost in my ability to be a broadcaster. And I came back to my hometown, and my dear wife was uh, decided to get a job teaching. She was a teacher. She had teaching ability. And she called me from the superintendent's office and said, there's a job for a broadcaster, a sports broadcaster in the station downtown. So I went down and got the job, uh, convincing the poor general manager that I knew a lot, even though I couldn't show him anything. <laughs> and, that, and that's where it started. And then and after that uh, football season, the other station in town called me and said, we'd like for you to come over and do football, basketball, baseball, uh, minor league baseball, same team I did when I was 10 years old, and uh, and boxing. Boxing was really big in those that time. So uh, that was it. Now, you mentioned wrestling in the introduction. That was another thing that somebody pushed a button. After I'd been over at this other station, KMUS in Muskogee, a good little station then. About a week later, they said, oh, by the way, every every month we do a broadcast of professional wrestling from the city auditorium, civic auditorium. And I said, for gosh sakes, I've never seen wrestling. I saw a little bit on television one time. Well, I didn't know a thing about it. And they said, I'll go down there and talk to the promoter. And so I went down there and uh, a couple of the wrestlers happened to be in town and they and I told them what my predicament and so they told me the, the the various holes and I wrote it down on a legal pad and I would check my legal pad to see which one was going when I first first started this stuff and so there there I was into wrestling and uh uh enjoyed it because uh you know I was doing radio so I could do whatever I wanted to with it and uh, three years later, I got a call from KRLD in Dallas. They said, we understand you're a really good wrestling announcer. It's like, buddy, you have no had, idea. Yeah. No, I have no idea if I am or not. A friend, of mine had been, a friend of mine had gone through town to Dallas and talked to them and said, they said they, they needed a wrestling announcer. And he, and he said, oh, I know the best one you could buy, hire. So that's. And that works out. I got hired. And uh, and I figured, well, I'm doing a lot of sports here, but Dallas is a huge town compared to Muskogee, and it's got to be a lot better. So I went down there, and, and that's where everything then began to, began to fall in place. I, that was the time in 53 when all the networks were drying up, you know, radio networks, and the station were trying to fill, figure out what to fill. So KRLD decided to do some high school football and got uh, Highland Park, which was a more uh, prestigious school in town, 
And that helped because I became friendly with a lot of people that can help you. Then they did decided they were going to do baseball, which they'd never done before. So I, I was there and I did, uh, I recreated and broadcast live uh, baseball or the Dallas Fort Worth Rangers and then the Dallas uh, Rangers. This was minor league, uh, AAA. And that went on from 1959 through 1971. And then the major league team came in. So that was, that was, you know, I had uh, a lot of years broadcasting baseball and football, the Dallas Cowboys and the Dallas Texans came to town and, uh, we, we had the Dallas Texans at KRLD, so I broadcast that with Charlie Jones, uh, who was a, became a major league broadcaster. And uh, then the Cowboys in 1965, uh, 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 they asked me to do color. And uh, the next year in 66, I started doing play-by-play. So all that, you know, I, I mean, it, uh, with the background of all I had done to prepare for all this um, worked out well because that I had improved as going along doing also University of North Texas I was doing at the same time. So I, of, some weekends, <laughs> some weekends I had a, game, a high school game on Friday, a college game on Saturday, and the Dallas Texans on Sunday which was quite a schedule. I was never at home, (laughs) (laughs) but, but, uh, that preparation, uh, you know, if you're doing it and you're doing it well enough to stay there, I I guess it's okay. But, uh, uh, I found, I found a quote today. I was reading the paper. There's a plumbing company called Benjamin Franklin Mm -hmm. and old Benjamin said by failing to prepare, you are preparing to fail. And I can attest to anybody who's want to do this business that doing the game is just the end of a long series of preparation. And when I had the Cowboy games, uh, I worked on those games every night of the week. And uh, you put in three or four hours uh, for uh, every game, college, high school, no matter what you You've got to get all the information. You have to pull it in. So preparing is the most important part of this because then you have all this in your mind or on a, on some paper, uh, which you can do. Now, today, it's a lot easier than it was then because you've got the computers and, and all the information. We didn't have that then, so it was a lot harder to put all this, find the information, put it all together. But I'm not, you know, applauding, patting myself on the back. It's just the fact that preparation is uh, is the key to being a really good broadcaster. Or I guess everything, anything else. So that's that's the background. And oh, wrestling! <laughs> I did wrestling live when I when I came to Dallas in the first place, uh, and uh, at the Sportatorium, which became an infamous icon of Dallas, and uh, kind of did that right along and. Uh, then the, the, the most important one was world-class championship wrestling. Uh, the last years, uh, that was when the Von Erichs were in power. And that, uh, that program that we devised, um, 
just uh, took off in, in uh, all over the world. It was just amazing. But it was a different kind of wrestling show and uh, a, a more personal and various things. So that was that was the last one. But but I still get people who remember me for the wrestling and don't remember me for the Cowboys. I was going to so, say, there was that, I, I saw the quote you had that like at one point in time, you were the fourth most popular person on television in Israel behind the Von Erichs. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, behind the Von Erichs. And uh, I never got to go to Israel. Uh, the <laughs> Von Erichs did. But uh, anyway, it uh, and, I, and I met an Israeli lady uh, some years ago at a... At a <laughs> signing for wrestling pictures she came over she had from israel and she came down from some town she heard i was there and she had always listened to the shows and, or watched them and it was so great to find somebody that uh, it was one of those who made that possible in israel but you know it's uh, it's always great to find people who really either admire you or don't admire you <laughs> what was it like kind of having a foothold in in the wrestling side of broadcasting as well because I think in, and even today although it's changed in a lot of respects people people still look at it as less than because of it's pre-scripted or they'll say it's fake etc cetera, etc cetera. But, but particularly back in the world class days um, the, the, the kind of era of kayfabe was still alive and it was portrayed as real and I mean before I sat down to talk to you I went back on the network and I was watching some of the old you know, Von Erickson flair stuff and, and, yeah. and it comes across and it was presented very much like an actual fight. Um, That's right. That's what was, right. what was different about broadcasting wrestling? Um, and, and what did you get out of broadcasting wrestling that you maybe didn't get from broadcasting, you know, more traditional sports, so to speak? Well, I, I think I would take it the opposite way. What I took into broadcasting wrestling was the same thing I did Broadcasting a, a, a football or baseball—well, not baseball, but but a, a regular athletic event—I I knew uh, that it was uh, the decision between the two wrestlers had already been decided, and in fact, they wanted me to come into the uh, uh, get together before the wrestling matches and talk about the, this and that. And I said, no, 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 I don't, I don't want to know what the what time this is going to happen or when this what's going to happen i want to react to it as though you know that i and i didn't know when it was going to when this decision was made to end the rat the, the match <laughs> so i i just uh i just broadcasted much like i did any other sport uh there are parts of wrestling uh and i think the main part that people probably know is that it the the winner is determined, and uh, for, and considering what wrestling people think, that uh, winner is determined because of the next wrestling match that they might want him to be wrestling the champion, and that really draws a big crowd. But as far as the basics of wrestling, it's a rough, tough, hard event, uh, terribly hard on the individuals. Uh, Accidents happen in the ring. I recall uh, we were uh, world class got so big we went out to the Cotton Bowl and brought, and broadcast out there. And uh, one of the wrestlers was uh, wrestling uh, Evan, uh, Kevin Bonnery, and he picked up a, a metal chair and 
somehow the timing got off and he really splattered uh, Kevin's head and his blood was running down right onto my uh, table where I was sitting broadcasting. So those things happen and that's real blood. Now, uh, if you look at some of the wrestlers like uh, uh, Flair or one of those, uh, his forehead would probably look like a, a map yeah. with all the scratches across and uh, either with a, a hard thumbnail or with a tiny bit of uh, uh, metal put in a, a bandage on your finger, uh, you can cut that forehead easily. So there was a real blood and there was, a, as they call it, the fake blood, which was still real blood, but came differently. And, uh, you know, throwing guys around and all that, uh, I saw guys break their arms and and uh, all sorts of things because it is a, a very difficult and, and terribly hard sport. Uh, accidents and the timing and everything is so intense. But I, I decided I'm not going to, I'm not going to make any differentiation uh, from uh, being a sportscaster. I'll just do the best I can of, of giving it that same feel and that same uh, uh uh, <laughs> I've lost the word. Same field. Uh, time, yeah. time that, that uh, you have uh, in other sports. That was my idea. What was the, okay. like, of, of all the things you've, you, you've obviously broadcast, you've seen a lot of iconic moments, a lot of iconic matchups. But when you think back, like, e- even, though, even though the determined outcome was already determined ahead of time, like, what was the Von Erichs versus the Freebirds like? And how did that compare to other things that you had been able to see over the course of 50 years? Uh, those were, um, well, I, you know, I've never seen much, uh, anything quite like those things. <laughs> and uh, they were so talented, the, the, the uh, three of them, six of them, the three Von Erics and the three uh, of the Freebirds, that it was always uh, a surprise to me and uh, how they could do all this and still keep going. I mean, they, they were just uh, uh, continually, you know, battling each other, knocking each other around, and uh, it was uh, it was really a, a succession of uh, great events whenever they they pulled together. Uh, I guess uh, David Von Erich was the uh, most impressive even though he didn't look like a wrestler, he was tall and kind of thin, uh, but he was the, the, the mastermind of those three guys. And uh, when he died, some of the, some of the uh, power of the Von Erichs left. I mean, it was just like it uh, shut down a part of the whole scene. And, uh, you know, things went from bad to worse then in, the, in their wrestling era. Sure. And ended so so tragically. So uh, there was a there was an era of about six years, and uh, then it was all gone. And uh, that uh, was the pathetic part of the whole thing. What was it like learning about that stuff, um, even from back at the beginning? When you talked about sitting down and and them walking you through all the holds and 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 walking in as the broadcaster that that's asking these guys to tell you and teach you kind of what they're doing, uh, so that you can go out and do your job. Well, it, it was, uh, I had to trust them. And uh, as I learned those holes, 
then, you know, then I, you know, it's like the preparation. Uh, I was prepared for whatever was coming and I got, knew the hole so well, it became second instinct. Uh, so, so that came along. And that's, and there are not so many holes that you can't remember them. I mean, there's just, you know, uh, each, each guy has some sort of favorite hole. But the, uh, the thing that really improved in wrestling was when I started, it was, uh, they had these uh, uh, best uh, uh, two out of three fall things. And those went on interminably. <laughs> and they decided that that was it. And, and guys would rest with a hole, you know, they'd rest because they went so darn long. Uh, so they'd get a hold on and uh, rest on the floor for a few, for a minute or two. And they, they did away with that. And that really improved the speed and the uh, uh, in, enjoyment of wrestling. They just had, you know, uh, figured it out one fall and uh, that was it. So uh, that's, uh, it changed the whole aspect of it. And that's uh, speeded up the game, speeded up everything. Uh, when we, when we devised world class, the uh, new camera, uh, video cameras, uh, were coming out, uh, becoming better and better. Uh, they use the old studio cameras on uh, wrestling, uh, at, up to that point. And that meant you had a, a one rest of one studio camera on the floor and one up higher. And that's all you could get. You got a medium shot and a, and a Wide shot, medium shot, wide shot. That was it. You couldn't get tight shots. You couldn't get uh, really. So when we devised WCCW, it was the idea of uh, the engineers or the cameramen uh, with, the with the camera on their shoulder on the side of the ring, which the wrestlers got upset that about that at first. And then they realized that uh, it didn't make any difference. The tight shots made them look great. So that. Uh, that in, uh, was uh, a hurdle we passed. But that was when the intensity and the uh, speed of the wrestling and the Bonerics really uh, took hold because nobody had seen that before. Even uh, McMahon admitted that we were far ahead of anybody uh, with this new uh, production technique. And, so, now, and now that's how it's done, you know, you kind of take it for granted. That's what it is every week now. Yeah, it's all the time now, and with all the other, I don't watch it, but every now and then I do happen to pass by, and there's a lot of explosions going on. So <laughs> I, we didn't have explosions. Yeah, a little bit of a different time now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, what a! I, I know your heart was always in baseball, though, um, and that was always your your kind of first love in broadcasting if, I, if i've got that right uh what yeah was, that's right what was it about baseball broadcasting and the art and the craft of it and that sport that attracted you so i think i think because the uh the players are more uh lifelike I guess they, they, there are people standing out there at second and third and in the outfield waiting for something to happen. And that's how, kind of like what we do sitting around during the day, we were waiting for something to happen and all that pit, uh, fits together. And it's the hardest, I think it's the hardest sport to broadcast because uh, there is that waiting that's standing. And then in, in on that, you have to uh, build the inter interest 
or remind people of the scene because you've got to think constantly changing. Uh, I used to be amused at my students when they would say, well, it's baseball and nothing happens. And I said, well, <laughs> then you haven't watched the baseball game because there's always something happening. Uh, somebody's moving over in the defense, second base, the shortstop. Today we have that uh, move of all the players moving over in the right side on the <laughs> left-handed batter, which I hope they, they stop. Uh, that's ridiculous. But the game is, is such a personal thing uh, to me. I, I mean, every kid can visualize himself being a baseball player. It's pretty hard to visualize sometimes being a football player, but some can, of course. But it's just uh, every little detail uh, that you're pointing out and, and describing uh, for that viewer, that one person that's uh, listening to you, uh, you're just telling her or him uh, what, the, what the count is, what the situation is. Their runners are second and third and one out and uh, the score and how it's going to uh, base it would do this and fly ball would do that. And, I mean, you know, it's always you, you, you know the game and you know what could happen and what might happen, and then maybe it doesn't happen. And then you're not – aware of anything going on and all of a sudden everything happens <laughs> it's just that kind of it's that kind of situation it constantly keeps you on your toes because you've got to react very quickly uh like i was watching last night line drive off the pitcher's leg they had the defense set up just right for a double play but the ball the shortstop was pulled out of position as he went to second and the ball which caromed off the pitcher went into left field and it two-run base hit. Yeah, but this is all the craziness of football, that, or the wonderful thing of, of baseball, I mean, that uh, in any level of it, from kids who are playing, that all sorts of funny things can happen. Uh, uh, my granddaughter is broadcasting uh, A-ball yep. at Lex Lexington, uh, Kentucky. And A-ball kids, these are 19 years old, some of them. There's an old saying, you know, in baseball. Well, it goes back to uh, Bull Durham. Uh, you throw the ball, you catch the ball, you hit the ball. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, and then it rains. <laughs> well, the first two things of that, the throw the ball and catch the ball, are very difficult in A-ball. <laughs> That's true. But then, but then the Yankees made five errors the other day. So so that's the reason baseball is so much fun. A-ball kids have a hard time throwing from A to, to B. And then they hear the Yankees make five errors in a game, and, and they look like the A-ball players. But it's just a crazy thing of the bounce of the ball or whatever happens. And, and that, that's what, you know, football is pretty uh, – I love football. And I, and I really, really enjoyed broadcasting the Cowboys and all that. But – it's pretty well laid out. It's kind of like on a graph, you know, you, and it can be an, exp uh, an exciting change of the, of the game. Uh, an interception turns it around. He runs for a touchdown, but baseball is, you got to wait for that for every play could be something different. And every game you see something that you've never seen before. That's the old saying in baseball. 
Does that does that, that sound like I like baseball? <laughs> yeah, yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> um, we had Jesse Goldberg Strassler on uh, this podcast a couple of weeks ago, uh, who, who does the Lansing Lugnuts now, and and every year he does a recreation broadcast to kind of oh, keep, yeah. keep that idea alive. Uh, and I know you used to do those back when they were, you know, a necessity as opposed to a, a, a novelty. Um, beyond the obvious difference of being at the stadium and physically being able to see what, what is what is happening and, and being in a studio, uh, what was different for you about broadcasting live and, and, uh, and in a recreation? And how did broadcasting a recreation then maybe better inform you uh, when you were actually sitting in front of a game and you had your eyes as a resource? That's a good question because uh, I started doing recreations in Muskogee when I was first up there broadcasting. And uh, I had heard uh, Gordon McClendon and that guy, those guys, and I knew they were recreating the games. For some reason, I'd found that out. But the question you said, uh, paying attention and, and, and uh, recreating a game, I always figured that uh, I had to time it. I couldn't speed up the game. I couldn't slow down the game. I had to try to time it just like a regular game. And that was how long the, between pitches and, and everything else. Now, the thing that I think is important there to me, it was that I would see this in my mind, reading off a piece of paper, what was happening. Uh, and then I was keeping score just like a game, but I had to pay very strict attention that I didn't get ahead of myself, that I didn't hurry things too much because you could hurry a base hit with a home with a with run scored. So it was it was a it was a dis discipline of seeing the game in your mind and uh, calling it just like you would a regular game. I think, as you said, sometimes it uh, when watching a real game, uh, you may have uh, I may have. Uh, gain the idea of holding back a little bit. Don't try to speed up. Don't try to get ahead of the play. Follow the play and finish the play. And that's what I had to do in recreation. You had to follow the play and then finish the play. Uh, a runner at second base. Here's the pitch. A line drive to right field. Uh, that's a base hit. Rounding third. Heading for the plate is Jones. Smith picks up the ball in the center field. The throw to the plate. Jones comes in, slides. He's safe. And uh, that sort of thing. And you try to time that uh, exactly like you would see it. Because when you, then when you go out and see it, you remember, hey, don't hurry. Make each part of that play stand out. The ball is hit. It's a base hit. The runner is rounding into third. The center fielder, he picks up the ball. here, And yeah, now you may be a little behind the play. That's okay. Here comes the throw. It's right at the plate. The runner slides. He's safe, and uh, or he's out, and and that's the timing of it that was so important in recreation. Uh, I, I you know it it was funny because I thought people knew that I was not on the road. I thought well, in Muskogee particularly, we didn't have much. We just had a little cut of cloud crowd noise. 
And uh, I did get the, uh, uh, the schedule of the trains going by, and we did have train noises. So at 8.55, the, some of the MK and T daily would go by the ballpark or something. Well, we had that, but that was all we had. <clears throat> we didn't have, uh, I hit a pencil against a stock of wood for, for a hit. We didn't have uh, that kind of uh, technical information. But uh, I found out one night, and I'll tell this story quickly. Uh, a friend of my dad's uh, saw me at the, at the grocery store, and it was the evening I was supposed to be like in Joplin, Missouri. And he said, well, you're going to fly up there. And I said, I don't go. I, I, you know, I recreate it. Yeah, I, I hear you, uh, all that. <laughs> I know you'll probably just fly up there. I said, yeah, I guess I'll fly up there. So, <laughs> so that night, a lady gets hit in the head with a foul ball. And evidently badly hit. And there was a lot of activity. And I had told my engineer uh, when this, this happened. And I said, you know, she's going to get hit. And I'll just have to talk about it in a while. So she's hit, and I'm talking about it, and all of a sudden he finds the recording of an ambulance arriving, and here comes the ambulance in. Now I've got to adjust my thinking that oh, <laughs> which I didn't, which I didn't know he was going to have. Now that and this really happened, they took her out of an ambulance, but I didn't think he had any sound effects. So we put her on the on the stretcher and took her out, and then he had the ambulance leaving. Well. That's that's pretty indicative of we're there, right? <laughs> and the next time I saw my friend, he said, I heard that ambulance. I said, yeah, that was quite a night. <laughs> so we didn't try to make it uh, confuse or, or make the people uh, be sure that we were really there. We just tried to make a little sound that helped to go along with the game. And it got better as the years went along. And and we had... Uh, I heard you had a fighter plane once. Pardon? I heard you had a fighter plane once. Oh, you! Oh, somebody told you that, did it? <laughs> yeah, we were at uh, WFA in Dallas, the radio station then. Uh, Charlie Jones and I, in 1965, the year they opened the new stadium out at Arlington, Turnpike Stadium. And that's when you had carts, and we had all sorts of sound effects. And this engineer was really into it. He had all sorts of uh, effects that he pulled off and, and made. So we're out at El Paso, and uh, there was the, the flight pattern came right over the ballpark down to the El Paso airport then. They have a downtown ball clamp down. So we're going along during the game and various <clears throat> planes are taking off, you know, uh, airliners, bombers, everything with not risk one right after another, but about every other inning, some plane takes off and then we're going along and all of a sudden he hits the wrong cart and a fighter plane <laughs> is diving on us. And fortunately it did not shoot his machine guns. It just came right, you know, down like that. And, and both of us, both of us looked up as we were talking about this. And Charlie said, I'm going to turn that guy into the FAA. And I said, yeah, we should, because that's dangerous. Diving on a ballpark. So, you know, that's a part of baseball. Something you don't expect happens. <laughs> and that was what we didn't expect. 
That's but yeah, re- recreation was fun. I, I I talked to my granddaughter about it because they don't do all the out of town games. And, mm. and uh, I said, you know, I'll help you with that because I have a little bit of background in it. But they're not; they don't plan to do that. But I'm glad that I heard about uh, Goldberg. Is that his name? Yes. Yeah, the, I, she said that somebody uh, she know she knew about was uh, uh, recreating at least one game a year, and uh, it's really it really is fun. And uh, I I'll, I'll give you one more recreation and let this go. But sure. Uh, at KRLD, when we started doing uh, that's where I started doing baseball. We had to do recreations there uh, in Dallas. And we were in Louisville, Kentucky, or someplace, or uh, anyway, Indianapolis, the, the AAA teams. And we were supposed to start at the pick up the game. The double it was a doubleheader. We were supposed to pick up the game at at three thirty or sometime. And the game was supposed to start at, at one, and they didn't want to carry the whole game, so that was fine. We were going to do part of one game and then the rest of the other. Well, the team. The team plane got caught somewhere in a storm and they had to wait a while. And by the time they got the game started, it was the time that we were going to pick up the game. So at 3.30, I started broadcasting and I started recreating this doubleheader. When we finished that night, we I did 29 innings. <laughs> 29 innings of recreation. There was no food. Of course, it was on a holiday weekend. There was nobody in the stadium station. I think I had a Coke and a candy bar about three times. <laughs> Excuse me. And by 29 innings, I was a zombie walking out of that place. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that's three games, three games or more. And, uh, that's when it, when you wish really wish you could see the people, because by that time you're seeing little people running around the table. <laughs> You might, be, it, it, you might be drawing was, them yourselves at that point. Yeah, it was really a great test. And when you don't play with it, when you're just preparing it, as Benjamin Franklin says, <laughs> uh, <laughs> prepare for it and do it, it really is a, a great satisfaction. Especially if you can do it in the same time frame. I would always check the paper the next day to see how fast the game ran. If we ran 250, and they ran 250. I felt okay, right on target. Let me go to the prep thing because uh, you, you, you've brought up the Ben Franklin line a couple of times, um, and it, it's always something we talk about on this podcast. Um, <clears throat> so tell me from your perspective, and obviously this spans a, a, a lot of time, but uh, how you prepare and how you have found over the course of a career um, you've prepared best and how your preparation has changed in that time. Uh, to suit you uh, or to, to to set you up in the best possible situation i don't <clears throat> i don't think i had the advantage of using computers much <laughs> and th- that is really a uh, a tremendous uh, uh value for you i've i've written two books and and uh, the, the computer and the internet are just wonderful in in re- refreshing your mind and getting facts these people today have a tremendous amount of what my, I'll just give you the plan. When I did the Cowboy games and when I did football, uh, the first thing I did was uh, 
I had a, I made my own spotting boards. <laughs> they were primitive, but they worked. And the spotting board is put uh, the offensive line and the offensive players at the top of the board and the defensive guys at the bottom. That was my way of doing it. Others have put defense on the other side anyway. But you have to have the spotting board with the numbers and the names because you can't remember everybody. But you try to, or I try, to memorize and be at least associated with the numbers and the names of all the offensive uh, skill players, like the wide receivers and the tight end, running backs, and, of course, the quarterback. So I worked on those that spotting board, and it, every week I had to make a new uh, opponent for the Cowboy game. And then on the Cowboy game, I had to go back over the statistics that I wrote down by the, by the player and how much how, how much yardage gained and what was the average. And I put a little uh, uh, that down uh, and uh, new new statistics every week. So that was took an evening. That took a day. Uh, then I uh, would go down and listen uh, to the uh, broadcast of the, the team that we were going to play that week. I'd listen to that, see if we had one, and, and listen to their, their players and listen to how, how that worked out. Uh, then I got to statistics and went over that and, as I said, made little notes on the spotting board so that I could put those in that. And, and this took each evening, the statistics for both teams, uh, the uh, background, the biographies. I've read all the biographies of the players and made notes on that where I could write it up on the spotting board. So starting on Monday, I worked all the way through Thursday. And uh, at the same time, then I had a, a, a college game on Saturday. So I had to work work on that one. Uh, that was all the preparation, finding the stats that go with the players and the team, uh, associating myself with the other team as well as I could uh, with the Cowboys. I remember uh, a game where uh, I was really, really thought that's where preparation stands out. Somebody, Meredith or somebody threw a pass and it was intercepted and immediately I identified the guy just like that, you know. And uh, which made that preparation and, or, I, or I hit the name right on the spotting board because I had a spotter and that helped. But to do that instantaneously when the play is interrupted by a, an interception, and to get that name right, right then, it, it was really a, a part of thinking, boy, you're really prepared for this well. How has, that, yeah. So how has the, how has what you had to do back then, um, I guess what's held true to that today? And now you know, we all have the internet today and, and it gives us so much more, but it also gives us a, a way to be lazy for lack of a better way of putting it. And that, yeah, you don't have to talk to people and you, you can limit certain things. But how has all of what you used to do back then um, held true today? And how much of it uh, should people do more of today to make them better? 
Well, you're getting into my uh, <laughs> my anguish of broadcasters. <laughs> I won't even mention television. Uh, I was watching. Uh, I will because it just <laughs> it really bothers me. I was watching a very major league. I mean, these were two top teams in major leagues, and the three, my God, three guys in the booth. Occasionally, they would tell you what the what the ball and strike count was. Occasionally, they'd tell you how many outs there were. Occasionally, and if something happened with a base hit, they would they would interrupt their discussions of uh, the great things they'd done in baseball or people they knew at baseball or great uh, opportunities in you know they were just mostly talking about what they had done and what they had seen. Okay, that's great. That's good over a beer, but not um, when you're broadcasting a game. There's every intensity of this thing. And I, I just sat, I sat there and I thought, my God, this, even on television, I don't know the names of all the players. I don't know the, I can't see the ball and strike count put up in that little box in the corner. <laughs> I can't remember it. I'd like to know where, you know, they wouldn't, they would show the runners at first and second, but they never talked about that. And what's the situation was with runners at first and second with the score, not talking about that. They're talking about their, the, the great days that they had and people they know that, that stuff. So now that I've gotten that out of my system. <laughs> and the same thing is true on in basketball. The best two guys on basketball are Jay Shulman and Billis, his color guy. Those two. In, once in a while, they'll deviate and tell a story with, uh, and go over a line a little bit. But they stay with the game. They're not trying to sell themselves. Or they, uh, or, or, because I know all this is because I played this, because I've done that. I was one of these guys on the baseball thing the other day. Well, I was a catcher, and I know about this. And boy, that's right. And he has to do And I thought, okay, do that when it's catcher. But don't, you know, anyhow. But Billis and and uh, and uh, Showman are the best on basketball. My my old friend and uh, former color announcer uh, Vern Lundquist uh, was one of the best while he was still broadcasting, and he he stayed with the game. That's what I what I think is so important. Stay with the game. That's what you're doing. You're trying to tell people who are watching who those people are keeping up with the score, keeping up with the motion, the time, uh, and this. And they don't seem to – I guess it's because they have so much information that they can talk about so many different things or, and they're, you know, they're, they're supposed to do that because maybe the game isn't that important to them. Uh, now that I have that off my mind, <laughs> uh, the – what gets me is the fact that I think a lot of play-by-play announcers uh, forget one thing. You are the conduit of sending information to the person listening or the person watching. You are, you are the guy who has to, particularly on radio, who else is going to tell them what's happening unless you do? And you are not the star of the broadcast. The game is. And what you describe with each play, with each individual play, with each detail that you can throw into it, 
one of the hard things to do in baseball is keep telling the score. The half inning may run for 20 minutes, but you've got to keep giving the score after every batter or after or before every batter because people want to know the score. The biggest complaint I had uh, was uh, one time uh, I was on a talk show and I was in Chicago then and the talk show was in Dallas. And this guy called in and said, hey, you remember such and such game? And I said, no, not really. He said, well, I was driving from El Paso to Dallas and that's 600 miles and you never gave the damn score. <laughs> and I thought, wow, I never gave the score in a 600 mile broadcast. <laughs> <laughs> and, but, but that's the little things that people listen to and, and the pronunciation of the players names just right. And boy, today it's a real challenge with all the Hispanic and the other names that are in them. Uh, which made it even uh, stronger. But, you know, you, on football, I'll give you an idea of what I'm talking about. The ball is on, the, on this, this Dallas 35-yard line. You're moving from left to right in the stadium. That's from my left to your right and my right. Cowboys come up the line of scrimmage. It's first and 10 on their own 35-yard line. No score. We're in early in the first quarter. Uh, Meredith looks over the defense. Uh, Renfro is wide uh, right. Uh, Reeves wide left as receivers. Meredith looks, drops back, and throws a pass out the left flat. It's complete to Jones at the 35 of the 40. He's up to the 45 and the 50 and down there, and that's the first down. It's first and 10 for the Cowboys now in their own 45-yard line. There's no score in the game. Now, that's very simple, but you have to do that over and over and over. They don't set I, – I listen to radio broadcasts. They don't set the uh, players anymore. Uh, of course, they got this hurry-up offense. You can't do it very well. But I always told my students, you give the score after every first down, every change of possession – uh, every time they score, you give the score. And every time uh, the other team punts, uh, or you punt and the other team takes the ball, then it's the score again. So you, you have the, the score is the biggest thing. Individually, you have prepared and you know the players, both teams in football, so you should be able to quickly identify the receiver on both teams. That's all That's all the people want. They want the score and the picture that you're painting to be very accurate and intense and in detail so that they can see the game just as well as you can. Uh, when I was uh, wondering if my life was worth uh, what I was doing uh, in Dallas when I started out, I was doing uh, baseball uh, minor leagues uh, and uh, I got a letter from a kid a young man who said you know uh, I was li I listen to your games when you're on the road and it really is great because I can see all the action the way you describe it and then when I come to Burnett Field I can see the game even though I'm blind now that's the greatest compliment I ever had in my life if you could see the game 
and he is listening to radio. And, and I told my class, I said, everybody's blind on radio. This kid was double blind. He was blind himself, and then he was listening to radio. But I, but you broadcast it in, in clarity and in description and detail, and he can see the game in his mind. He was like recreating it. You see the game in your mind as you broadcast. And that, that's what I think they ought to think about. Don't think about yourself. If you're a really good broadcaster, that's going to come through. You're going to get fame. But think of the listener. Think of that one-on-one that you have to <clears throat> tell that lady who knows nothing about the players or anything, but she's listening to the game, and she can see it because you're describing it so well. You mentioned was, yeah. You, go ahead. You mentioned Vern in there in, in all of that. I want to. There's a couple things you said I want to touch on. Um, but uh, as a quick aside, uh, can you describe for me what a 1960s Vern Lundquist was like? <laughs> My daughter's here and she's laughing. <laughs> Vern, Vern was a free spirit. Uh, he was great. I had had Blackie Sherrod as my color announcer in the three years before Vern showed up uh, with the Cowboys. And Vern was just a, a great free spirit. But it, it, at the same time, he really paid attention to the game. So he was a good color announcer. And he picked up on these things. Uh, we uh, had been to a, a function in San Francisco and and Vern smoked, and uh, we walked out of the building, and he'd been smoking, and pretty soon I looked over, and his pocket was smoking. <laughs> and he had put his cigarette in his pocket. <laughs> Seems like a bad plan. <laughs> well, it was a bad idea. Uh, one other story. We were in Cleveland in the old, old stadium you know, the, the, that had the open end of the lake. And it was winter, I mean, and it was cold. You're sitting on, and we had to go up on top of this, of this roof in this little aluminum booth and look down on the field, which wasn't a bad view, but it was high and it was, the wind was blowing in and I had on an overcoat, a suit, a hat and gloves. And, and Vern was a little late getting up. We weren't on the air yet, but here comes Vern in a sport coat. <laughs> And I said, you're going to freeze. Oh, I couldn't. I said, where's your coat? I don't know. I left it someplace. <laughs> <laughs> so so those were two stories I'll tell about Bird. I really love working with him. He's a tremendous guy. And uh, he, and, and I say he was a little forgetful sometimes <laughs> young, about things. But uh, those two stories. Uh, we were at the Super Bowl in 72 in that old stadium in New Orleans and uh, knocked them. Somehow, we made some. we did something and a piece of the window fell down in the crowd. And he said, well, we've done it now. We're going to have to fight our way out of New Orleans. <laughs> <laughs> and I looked down and waved to the crowd and, and apologized and he's laughing. But, you know, it was, it was, uh, and the other, oh, one other thing, I'm sorry, you get burned, I got it. But no, we you're good. <laughs> we were in San Francisco and uh, loved to go to Kizar Stadium. That was the old stadium. Yeah. Right? And uh, 
he would uh, he'd go down and do a post game, you know, with us all the time, every game. And that was that was really good. So he'd leave a little early. So he left. And we it was a tremendous game and really exciting game. So I I finish up and I do all the timing that I think is necessary for him. And then I say, and I don't know if he's there or not. You can't tell. Okay, Vern, uh, you take it down in the clubhouse. How are things going with the Cowboys? And, and there's no sound. Engineer shakes his head. There's no sound. And I said, well, evidently Vern's uh, having a little trouble. They're probably celebrating. So I interviewed everybody. Everybody that walked by the booth, and I kept throwing it to Bird, and he never showed up. <clears throat> what happened? And it wasn't his fault, uh, but he had the the microphone and the uh, amplifier down there and against the wall, and they had thrown all their big uh, uh, cases uh, to put their uniforms in and everything over in that corner. And he couldn't get underneath there to get to the microphone. So we didn't have a post-game show that day. <laughs> Certainly wasn't Burns' fault, but he, he felt badly about it. But, uh, yeah, it was always fun with him. And as I said, he was a tremendous color man. And, and you know, he he willed himself and, and uh, worked so darn hard to become one of the better play-by-play broadcasters in the country. And uh, I salute him for that. That he did a tremendous guy, job, and I, I miss him on basketball. <clears throat> so that's for him. Uh, you, you mentioned the Super Bowl in there, and I want to go back a little before that, if I can. Uh, and this will be an ironic question uh, because we just talked about baseball recreation. Um, but uh, one of the things that that I was taught very early on in in broadcasting was that you can't broadcast a game you're not at, so you have to have the windows open. Uh, oh gosh, yes, yes. Tell me about the ice bowl. Uh, <laughs> were, um, were the windows open, or was that one of those ones where you just figured you'd get by with them closed? <laughs> well, <laughs> you're so right. It was uh, around 20 below zero when we arrived at the stadium that day. It was 35 below zero that morning or that night when the, that storm came in. So uh, Blackie Sherrod, who was a, another wonderful color announcer, uh, he, he, he knew exactly the timing. He knew exactly what to say, and he said it so well. But we go up to the stadium, and, and uh, I had forgotten my gloves, which was a really a devastating sort of thing. But uh, it's cold, and, and there was no heat in the – or if there was any, it was overcome by the cold in the press box. <laughs> It wasn't a very big press box. We had two windows in the front of our booth. And I tried to open the windows and they were frozen shut. It's probably just as well. As, well, the wind was blowing, but it was blowing behind us. So it would have been okay to open them, but it would not have helped uh, our condition. But yeah, we, we couldn't open the windows. And uh, they were standing in there with the, with the engineer and the, and the spotter. For, for Green Bay and uh, two of us. And all of a sudden we noticed that the windows are icing up. And this is a real problem because the ice is getting thick and it's hard to see. And uh, not anticipating that, I didn't even think about it before the game. So the, the, the uh, spotter said, well, I'll go across the street to the, um, to the service station and, and I'll bring you back some uh, 
the icer. He said, I'll be right back. Well, 30 minutes later, he comes in looking like he's been frozen to death. <laughs> and with three cans of the icer, and we used it all during the game to keep the ice off the windows so we could see. It was that, it was that kind of, of course, the coffee froze. Nobody had coffee, nobody had food. Uh, and Blackie and I talked about it before the game, and we said, this is terrible, but we're not, let's don't dwell on it. Let's just give the temperature occasionally. And, and uh, the condition that we can see on the field and not say, oh, boy, it's so cold. We have no coffee. We're really in tough trouble up here. Don't talk about ourselves. Just do the game. And uh, so that's what we did. Uh, it, was, uh, it was really a very good game uh, that uh, played. And uh, the Cowboys had the lead on that last drive, but the last drive, was a beautiful Bart Starr uh, production. And of course they won the game, but uh, it was one of the most uh, interesting events I've ever been in. And it's still, you know, every year it's a, it's reenacted. It's a play, the game is played. I have a copy of it. And uh, it was uh, tragic that uh, Anybody had to lose it. Meredith thought he had told us sit on the plane and I was sitting right behind him. Uh, he was in tears and that he had, he'd lost the game. He'd lost the game. And guys came over and said, you didn't lose the game. And everybody, it was just a, that kind of situation. But they came back in uh, 72, they did the Super Bowl and did it up grand. I always think about that one because uh, we, we played a football game here at Ball State. I think it was two years ago and it wasn't even that Cold, I mean, like, it's not even in comparison, but it was like 30 degrees out, and it was a wind chill of, like, in the 20s. That's and, cold. And our, and our color guy looked at me, and he goes, you're not going to open that window, are you? And I was like, of course we're going to open the window. Uh, <laughs> and I thought he was going to quit before the game started. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, but we made it through. So I was... There is, a, there is a feeling about the window open, and the crowd situation filters up, and you... You're in the game inside a booth with the windows closed. You're not in the game, really. You're yeah. you're you're in a studio looking at it. And uh, I just, you know, I just read in the paper uh, one of the networks is not going to Russia to cover the the uh, world soccer situation. They're going to do it off television in the studio. Mm. And uh, I, I you it's just different. can't see all the can't see all the game that way. It's different, but that, but they're saving money. Yeah. And uh, okay, that's the way you want to do it. Fine. <laughs> um, let me ask you about teaching too, because I, I've read a lot that that is kind of, as much as we've talked about all of the different things you've done in your career, that is, a lot of ways the highlight of what you've been able to do. Um, how much does the Mercer Mafia mean to you, all these years later? I've got about uh, forty sons and daughters out there who I just love. And uh, we just had a little reunion and 22 or three showed up. Uh, some from the very beginning of the time when we put the radio station on the air at KNTU, they came all the way from uh, the West Coast. I mean, this was just a little reunion that I thought of, of having the guys get together. We had uh, Tex-Mex food, of course, from Texas and <laughs> sat around and told stories and talked about it. 
everything. But it, it was it was so great to see these people I hadn't seen in such a long time and uh, to find out what they've been doing. Most of them still kind of associated with broadcasting. And uh, one guy's been in one place. I think he's the longest one that got out of school before the rest of them. And he's been in the same place for it must be 40 years or 45, 50 years. So it was, it was just wonderful. And I, and I keep in touch with some of them. Uh, I, I just got a, a message to, today from uh, Dave Barnett. Yeah. And he said, uh, I just want to let you know that this is the day when uh, one of the professors at North Texas had found out that they needed a person at KRLD. And he told Dave and Dave got the job and worked with uh, Brad Sham, who was at the station then. And that was the beginning of his uh, 40 years in this business. And uh, Dave was one of those <laughs> when he came to class in one of my early classes after uh, in uh, the 70s. Uh, and he turned in a tape and I thought, what the heck do I teach this kid? <laughs> I mean, he just had it down. It was natural. And uh, I would find all sorts of things to give him a critique to make the page run a while. But he was, he was a wonderful student, a wonderful young man, <clears throat> and still is. And thank goodness he's back at North Texas now after 40 years and broadcasting for, for the university. But, uh, yeah, teaching <clears throat> turns out to be, I think, the uh, probably, uh, you know, importance is not the importance of my broadcasting was I enjoyed it. I did it. And it, it was what I'd learned, earned my live, livelihood for my wife and four kids. And uh, and then teaching came along after I'd been through everything <clears throat> and teaching those guys as well as uh, we could, and they're practicing, uh, was just wonderful. That was a time of little uh, tape recorders. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, one of the uh, requirements was after the first week, after I gave them the fundamentals, they had to go out every week, every week of the 12, 13 weeks of the semester and tape record a game from the stadium, sitting in the stadium with the tape recorder in their lap and the information in hand and broadcast the game. And that, that I said, told them, I said, this is the hardest thing you'll ever do if you become a broadcaster. Nothing will be as hard as this. But this is where you're going to learn. So uh, they... Uh, they did it, and, and some of them would just come back screaming, bloody murder. It can't be done. It just can't be done. But they <laughs> stayed with it. And, uh, you know, you, I've got se several of them who have done just spectacularly well, and others who are still broadcasting and doing very well. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was a wonderful thing. And there was a writer in uh, Fort Worth who uh, – I guess he'd gone to a game and saw one of the kids out in the stadium and talked to him and said that the Mercer Mafia is out every Friday night. If you have somebody with a tape recorder sitting in the stands with you, then that's uh, 
He's one of the students. So the Mercer Mafia was all over 15 of them now every week and learning how to do the game. But they learned how to do the game. And I critiqued every one of them. One of the things, uh, and I'll critique you on this, do you ever say get in a broadcast? Get or yet? Get, G-E-T. Yeah, probably far too many times, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not trying to embarrass you. No, 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 not at all. But it's it's a, the simplest word to forget about the rest of the language. In the first day of class, I would write that on the whiteboard and then run a, a red line through it and say, I don't want to ever hear any of you say this word again. Because every time you say it, you're going to get a cut and grade. <laughs> and, I, and I did that because one time I was listening to two very famous announcers. They use get seven times, Joel, seven times in one play. And I said, my God, you guys are making a million dollars a game and you don't know the language. So that's... <laughs> So that's that was my that was my thing. Craig Way would say occasionally he talked to me, he said, I said get on the air the other day and it turned cold. <laughs> what else would you listen for? Uh, if you're critiquing students or even if you listened back to your own stuff, what are oh. the, what are the types of things that, that when you sit down to listen to a tape, um, be it of somebody else or of you, uh, that that irk you, that intrigue you, whatever it might be. Uh, the word will go, will be, will score, will will something, which is saying he's going to do it when? Tomorrow, this week, sometime. I mean, the guy the guy is at second base or at first base. And there's a line drive into right field base hit. The runner rounds second. He's going to third. He runs to third. He heads for third. He's not, he will not. It's not that he will go to third because he's on the way now. And so you don't use will. He will score. No, he's scoring. He comes around third, hits for the plate, slides in, he scores. You know, it's, it's just will. It's, it's not in a part of the action of right now in broadcasting the game. Uh, that's, that's one of my pet peeves. Uh, and those who get high marks. Not finishing a play. Uh, just uh, you know, line drive right field, the base hit around second, and uh, the runner around second, and then here comes the throw, and the runner stays, and the batter stays at first base. What happened to the runner rounding second? Yeah, you got to finish that. Uh, line drive uh, into left field, so and so round second, head for third. Here comes the throw. Well, wait a minute. What happened out there? Here's the line drive into left field. That's a base hit. The left fielder Jones is running it down at the wall. The batter is heading for second. Here comes the throw in to third, and holding up with a double is Joe or Wilson. You know, the ball goes out. Come back to the batter. He's heading, rounding first, heading for second. Here comes. Go back to the outfield. The outfielder picks up the ball. Is he going to throw to second or is he going to throw to third? He looks and he throws to third because the guy's already at second base. You see, in and out and and calling the 
the people who are handling the ball in the in that same place so that everybody knows what's going on. Uh, it's just a little thing. And you slow down a little bit. You know, you, you don't have to be right on top of it because but you want to get the whole picture. The ball just doesn't go into left field and die. Ball goes out there and the outfielder picks it up, throws it in the second, the runner stops at first. Just very simple little things, and it doesn't take any time. You know, same way with the double play. Ground ball to short. Wilson gloves it, throws to second for one, back to first, double play. Just very simple, but they see everything that happens. So, in, and in, same thing in football. If, if you don't finish a play, or you don't get the score. Uh, it always was puzzling to me. Or first down. Here's a pass downfield of the 25-yard line. It's caught, and uh, he's down. Well, what? What happened? <laughs> it's first down, or it's third down and four. You just have to finish the play and give the end. And, and if it's a first down, then you get the score. As I said, every first down, you give the score. And that means the guy just made a first down. So now the score is this, and they're at uh, the opponent's 25-yard line. So you see what the situation is, the situation, situation, situation. And that's what we worked on all the time, finishing the plays, keeping the play going, not using get, not using will. They're running the third. They're racing the third. They're flying the third. They're, you know, they're, they're on their way to third. All those things better than uh, he will go to third. Oh, boy, that's, that's nothing. That's Bill Mercer, our guest this week on Play-By-Play Cast. Get rid of the word gets. Gets is out. Done. And this goes back, you know, it, it had been on my radar, as, as I said in the open, for the longest time to start expanding on my vocabulary. Uh, and, and start figuring out different ways to describe different things. That was, I, I kind of predetermined months ago that that's what I was going to do. And, you know, talking, as I said, with Jesse uh, Goldberg Strassler on the podcast kind of brought that to the forefront again in my mind. But what really pushed me, like, why this week did I start going to really dive into it? Uh, part of it was I've got more free time now, but part of it too was I talked to Bill Mercer last week. And he said, eliminate the word gets from my vocabulary. And I was like, well, what am I supposed to say when he gets a first down? Um, and, well, that's the thing. Be a master of your craft. Understand the language and find some other way to say he gets a first down. He gets buckets. Uh, he gets a base hit. He gets the third strike call. Uh, it's a word we use so often that it's not lazy, but it's just, it's one of the easiest areas you can go to uh, be more explanatory, to be more accurate, to be more colorful, and uh, to help craft and sew a better product. So gets, it's out. <laughs> that's, 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 what, uh, that's what Bill left us with, and that's what I will leave you with here today as well. Uh, it was awesome to talk to Bill Mercer. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. We went about an hour. Um, so thank you for sticking around and uh, listening to it all. Um, it was it was awesome. 
It was cool. And my, uh, my sincere appreciation to Bill, as I say many times on this podcast, for people to take a flyer and record a podcast, take an hour of their day with somebody they do not know to talk about their lives, their careers, and their crafts. Uh, many thanks to Bill Mercer for being a guest here on Play by Playcast. They are playing the music, though. So that's the go-home cue. we got to get up on out of here. We'll talk to you next Friday morning. Another episode of PXPCAT is coming your way. See you. And that will do it from St. Louis, where the score is inconclusive.